0: R- RTI International's, International's Justice Practice, practice Area presents Justice Science. Welcome to Just Science, a podcast for justice professionals and anyone interested in learning more about forensic science, innovative technology, current research, and actionable strategies to improve the criminal justice system. In this episode, Just Science sat down with Dr. Mohammed Al-Mazroy, a forensic practitioner with the Abu Dhabi police, to discuss his dissertation work, which examines how workplace stressors may affect decision-making in the field of forensic science. In their daily jobs, forensic science practitioners are tasked with making countless decisions that could make a large impact on people's lives. As a result of this experience, Dr. Almas Roy conducted a pivotal research study to examine how stress affects the way that forensic practitioners make these important decisions. Listen along as Dr. Almas Roy highlights some of the most salient workplace stressors in forensic science, how those stressors affect decision-making, and how he has laid the foundation for future research on this topic. This episode is funded by the National Institute of Justice's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. Some content in this podcast may be considered sensitive and may evoke emotional responses or may not be appropriate for younger audiences. Here's your host, Danya Slack.
1: Hello, and welcome to Just Science. I'm your host, Danya Slack, with the Forensic Technology Center of Excellence, a program of the National Institute of Justice. Today's episode aims to offer some recommendations of what forensic labs could do to manage workplace stressors that forensic practitioners may face. The conversation will first focus on some theoretical background and research findings on the possible sources and impact of stress on decision-making in forensic science. Here to discuss this case study is Dr. Mohammed al Welcome, Mohammed.
2: Thank you so much, uh, Donia, and thank you really for hosting me in this episode. I would like to start with a disclaimer. Uh, opinions expressed in this podcast are solely my own and do not represent the opinions or beliefs of Abu Dhabi police. In addition, any findings mentioned in this episode are not necessarily reflective of specific organizations.
1: Same goes for the disclaimer with the National Institute of Justice. So Mohammed, I was able to get uh, a copy of your dissertation work that was focused on forensic stressors and was a very great and comprehensive study that really adds to the body of literature that I know is, is sorely lacking. So I would love to know what sparked the idea for you to do this research?
2: I would say the thing that sparked my ideas could be divided into two main uh, aspects. One is from practice. I am a forensic practitioner. So I feel that during my work, researching this part is really important, looking at workplace stress and how it can contribute to the practitioner's well-being and their performance at work. Now, there's a lot of developments and technologies in forensic science But here, the focus of my research is on the people, on the human, on the practitioner, because in the end, it's the practitioner who are the ones who will operate those technologies. And they are the ones who will make uh, important case decisions. Some of these decisions are even complex and difficult that uh, technologies might not be able to unpack. So it's really important to maintain the optimum working environments of the people, of the practitioners themselves. Otherwise, we may end up losing them, losing those talents. And in the Mm -hmm. end, it might be a cost to the forensic uh, science organization. This is the practice side of it that sparked my idea to look into this. And the second part, I started by looking at the broad picture of human factors that may influence uh, decisions in forensic science. And I read the papers by one of my supervisors. Uh, Dr. Etienne Dror, and I was really, really fascinated by his uh, work. So I started digging deeper into this, and I I was very lucky to be part of his team to work with him and Professor Ruth Morgan at University College London when I was doing my PhD. And during the discussions, it was very evident that there was a huge, significant lack in the literature uh, in terms of understanding workplace stress but more specifically, how it pertains to the decision-making of forensic science.
1: Yeah, I was very interested by your research study and your concepts for being able to really test this. And it's interesting, I I also have an interest in this as well, as I have also uh, been involved in in the, the research realm for this particular topic. And it was kind of this similar journey where you understand when you're around other forensic scientists that, you know, there are different types of stressors that they might experience. And you also know at the end of the day, that the analysis and the decisions that they're making, they really do have a life or death impact, right? Like there are consequences to being able to ensure that their decisions are not being taken lightly. And so I have also kept up with the the research work of of Dr. Dvor. He's obviously very well respected in this field been a lot of interest even by the National Institute of Justice in funding research in this area. And hopefully that continues. So I'm really excited to um, look at and for the audience unpack what this really important study that you performed. So what were the main research questions that you aim to address in this study?
2: I would say, broadly speaking, the two main research questions are, first, what are the possible sources of stress that forensic practitioners feel? So this was answered through self-reported studies. And the second main part was, what is the possible impact of stress on real decisions in forensic science? These are the two uh, main questions that I looked into. And just to make it clear, why am I saying or emphasizing on the possible? So I say possible sources or possible impact. The reason here is because our study was one of the first to look into uh, the relationship between workplace stress and the stresses in general and decision making, as we mentioned earlier. Many of the other studies looked at other aspects like well being and others that I will impact soon, which is when we think of the impact of stress, we can look into three types of impact. One is on the strain that the a human practitioner may, may feel. So that could include things like burnout or having a secondary traumatic stress uh, by being exposed to distressing elements from the families of the victims or, or other aspects. So this is a strain impact, which we could call it. And then we have the second type of impact is a job attitude. So here we're looking at how people think So uh, what do they think about their workplace and jobs? Um, Are they satisfied? Are they motivated to do their actual casework analysis? So this is about the second level. It's an attitude. And then if that attitude becomes a behavior, so that would be the third form of impact I'm I'm looking into here. A behavior can include things like people started now to look for actively to look for other jobs or their behavior uh, during the casework and the decisions and performance so my research actually looked at this latter part the job behavior and specifically the performance and the decision making of uh, experts that's why we're not sure this is uh, this area is quite immature at the moment in, in forensic science domain compared to other domains now the Second reason why I'm saying it's possible is stress research in generally is a complex matter where it depends on the context where we are studying it. Stressors can vary from, for example, lab to lab and even within the same lab. And it differs even among individuals. That's why it's actually more scientifically sound to say that our findings were exploratory in nature rather than having a definitive answer.
1: So that's really interesting and and I agree. I mean, I've I've looked at the literature, I keep up with the literature and there really are very few studies and none that I can think of that really do uh, look at the impact of stress on decision-making specifically in the forensic sciences. There have been other studies, I know you're using a study for how to induce stress. So this is clearly research that's been done across other domains. And it's interesting that this has not been done yet, specifically on forensic scientists. So if you could just tell us a little bit about the the design for the first research question of the types of stressor and then maybe discuss some of the findings from that.
2: Yes, sure. To answer the first question, we uh, worked through my uh, supervisors uh, with a lab, collaborator lab, to identify the possible sources and to refine the research questions in there. And we managed in the end to have a set of questions that are meaningful to the lab and to categorize the questions into both the possible source of stress and also within that, the feedback. And I will explain soon how feedback could be related to stress. And then within the design of the survey, it was agreed through the available data that the scale would be one to seven, where well, well, one would be uh, low feelings of stress, and seven could mean uh, high feelings of stress, and this is how we went through with the with the first study.
1: So this was a Likert scale that you gave to your forensic practitioners a self-assessment for them to determine their perception of their stress. Correct.
2: Yes, correct. This was their perception of the stress. And how they feel that they experience stresses in the workplace.
1: Was it generally how they felt about stress, whether it was workload or management uh, stressors, or or was it a combination of both?
2: Through that study, there were combination questions that included both questions from the actual uh, workplace, like as you mentioned, related to management or related to uh, how many caseworks they are involved in. And also there were questions related to the specific tasks that they can get involved to in terms of reporting conclusions. And there were questions about stresses outside the workplace, like personal stresses. And we tried to see if there there were variations among these different types of questions.
1: Fantastic. So I know you had a pretty good sample set, about 150 examiners. So that is a really nice rate of getting the survey data back. So can you maybe go over what the findings were for that first part of the study?
2: Looking at the main findings of this first question, so the possible sources of workplace stress, we could say that uh, the, the main findings seemed to go to this direction. First, it seemed that the forensic practitioners seem to perceive that their stress come more from what you call common stresses. So common stresses are the ones that could be common across occupations, not necessarily in forensic science context. So even outside uh, non-forensic domain can be applicable to them. And these uh, were mainly through stresses from working in high caseload and from working too many cases. And second, from supervisory and management stress. And that level of stress was more than other types of stressors, including forensic-specific stresses. So what do I mean by forensic-specific stressors is those that are unique to the forensic science context. And one example here, uh, working high-profile cases, that was not, I was a bit surprised, actually, that was not the main uh, stressor and even not compared to personal reasons were lower than the common stresses. So personal reasons could be things like having financial issues. So this was a main finding that common stresses are really important. And why I think this is important, because if these studies show that common stresses could be things like having even promotion backlog, like a People stop being promoted or other things. That means we can look at management approaches that are common from other domains and we can benefit from them here. This could be a justification for that. Another thing that this means that maybe the management might be looking at meaningful management mitigation. I don't like actually the word mitigation, I prefer the word optimization strategies. I like that. The reason uh, for the, using the word optimization is that the stresses can be high and can be low. And we want it to be at an optimum level of moderate rather than uh, being too high to be mitigated or too low to be increased for an optimum performance.
1: Well, I, I was interested by your, your take on that because I know from your, uh, the literature review that you've done in your work, so, this was a paper by Driscoll et al. 2014 that too low of stress actually can lead to an underload, boredom, lower performance. And that has actually tracked with a lot of the research that I've looked at, where uh, when individuals are burned out, sometimes people make this assumption that they leave their jobs, but it's actually the opposite they stay in the job, right? And so that actually could be detrimental. <laughs> to to the actual job itself when you have disengaged lower performers who are burned out or maybe feeling too much stress too little stress and they end up staying in the job in in ways that maybe they shouldn't however it's interesting too that in your literature review that moderate levels actually that is the optimized level of stress and that was a paper that was actually done by Yerkes and dodson and it's a paper from 1908 so more than a hundred years ago, research has been looked into of what is that optimum level of stress? So it, it is interesting.
2: I, I couldn't agree more. And and we forget sometimes that some stress can be good and can be motivating actually to people. The Yerkes-Donson law is, as you mentioned, is quite an old law that we still use today. And it's good that we are now looking at the low part of the stress, not just the high part of the stress. So we mentioned one of the main findings on the possible sources that common stresses are important. Now, there was another uh, interesting finding I thought. So we had questions about feedback and how they could be related to stress and could affect one another. So feedback could be just from a theoretical perspective. It could be either explicit feedback in the workplace where, let's say, the supervisor would talk to other people and they say, Thank you, for example, or well done. This is an explicit feedback where it's coded and expressed. A lot of the feedbacks are not expressed and they are implicit. The, the receiver might not understand, but they might perceive it in a way. So this could be things like smiling. And I found that there were some of the questions that were more of the implicit feedback that the experts of the practitioners may experience. We found that some of the practitioners felt that they knew what the stakeholders would communicate with them, like stakeholders like the lawyers or the police officers from their conclusion. And that's an expectation that the practitioners feel at least, even if it doesn't exist, that doesn't matter. What matters here is that they feel it and they perceive it. There could be some systemic pressures within the working environment. Some of them are not expressed and uh, are implicit. But in the end, what matters is what the conclusions or the reported conclusions. And that's what goes in the end to the stakeholders and might have impact or consequences to the case, ultimately. Because one expert will have many cases and even one expert decision is important, and it's ultimately hope that none of the experts will have or will feel of implicit pressures to report any conclusions.
1: Again, going back to your word of optimization, that's an easy thing perhaps to optimize, right? Laboratory managers and supervisors, and and other engaged stakeholders, whether it be the investigators, prosecutors, or others in the legal system, to even just give. Feedback, You know, that implicit uh, or explicit feedback could actually add to the well-being or the workplace perceptions of, of stress. Would you mind giving us a little bit of background on some of the sources and background theory on occupational stress? I would
2: say that one way to look at workplace stress, and it's very useful to have this understanding, theoretical background of stress before digging into the empirical data. First, you have stressors that are surrounding the practitioner, so, so, so it's from the workplace environment, uh, like having the relationship at work, as, uh, as an example. So it's outside the practitioner themselves. Then you have factors or stresses that originate within uh, the uh, individual uh, practitioner. And these could be their own background anxiety, for example, or how much they tolerate uncertainty and um, ambiguity. Tolerance to ambiguity is a known phenomenon in the medical domain. It could be applicable to the forensic science domain. For example, when you look at the selection of traces of ambiguous crime scenes, that could induce some tolerance to ambiguity stressor. So we have the working environment stressors and the individual stressors. Now, the working environment one could be further classified into either common stressors and the ones that are specific to forensic science. So these could include things like being exposed to bloody crime scenes or in the forensic science, there is generally a tendency to not tolerate having mistakes because mistakes can have consequences to, to the casework. Now, when we look at solutions or how to manage stress, there is a third level that should be looked at that stress can be good and can be bad. And what we aim here is to minimize the bad and to increase the good. And uh, one theory that is very relevant here is what's called the challenge, hindrance, Stress framework. In this framework, we have the challenge stressors. So these are the stressors that can be motivating to do the work and that could include reasonable deadlines. So deadlines actually are good stressors Hmm. if they are reasonable. They can be motivating and maybe we should encourage that. Or you have the other one, the other type, which is hindrance stressors. And these are the ones that are not good in a way. Uh, This could include role conflict uh, or even office politics. So ultimately, what we are looking for is to increase the uh, challenge stressors and to reduce the hindrance stressors.
1: So at this point, you could tell us a little bit about the second part of your study. What is really the impact of stress on forensic decisions? So what did you do and what were some of your main findings? This was... Actually,
2: the more challenging part of uh, my research. (laughs) So, in one of the self report studies, we found out that practitioners were divided. Some of them thought, okay, we think that stress impacts our judgments. Others said, no, we don't think. And others were not sure. So, this was another justification to look at this question in an experimental approach by inducing stress and having a forensic judgment so that we have a more objective answer. So what were the design of this study? First, we had to select a forensic decision. And what we decided, since this was an exploratory study, uh, we decided to choose fingerprint decisions because fingerprints are widely used in the forensic science domain. Uh, They carry a lot of weight in the legal judgments as well. And another reason for selecting this type of decision is any finding that we may find with fingerprint may be applicable to other disciplines that relies on pattern recognition. Now, the more challenging part is how do we stress participants? We needed to actually here to induce stress to human participants effectively so they feel they are stressed but we were not allowed to stress them too much because otherwise it's unethical through research. So what happened is when we started to do that part, COVID-19 happened and it forced us to think in a novel way. So a lot of the research moved online during that period. We were not allowed to access participants in person. So we had to think of a way to stress participants in an online environment. So I had to really look into other domains. I looked at the medical domain, uh, the psychology domain, and uh, all of these uh, stress inducing methods that other people did. And I tried to see what I can adapt. There was, at the time, no research that did stress participants online and without the presence of researchers. So researchers are usually used as stressing agent, And we didn't want to do that because our research is a bit more complex than we cannot be present with every practitioner.
1: You don't want to add in that variable of having your observer effect. And is that the stressor or is the stress the stressor? Very challenging. Exactly.
2: There are many variables that were involved. And we wanted to simplify the experiment as much as possible. So in the end, we used two types of stressors and combined them together. One is what we call social evaluative threat. So this is a a stressor that means when one person is being negatively judged by other people, like you have a negative feedback, so they feel uh, bad about it. And the other kind of stressor is what we call uncontrollability. So when the practitioner cannot control the situation, like having a deadline or time pressure in order to achieve a task. And one uh, meta-analysis found out that if you combine these together, you can achieve the highest level of stress to human participants. So we Mm -hmm. use that theoretical background in order to do our manipulation. And what we did was simple, following a previously established uh, method using mathematical questions and multiple choice questions, but with deadlines and with feedback given to them. So the participant could answer a question, let's say a mathematical question, and they might receive a wrong feedback in red. And we classified that as a social evaluative threat, because they are being negatively judged by the computer in this example. And we found a way to compare the individual score with an average score so that they feel they're even more negatively judged. And we had different elements to induce uncontrollability. So they could not, for example, choose the type of question. It was random and they could not choose it. And there were time limits to answer the questions in the stress condition. All of these were uh, uncontrollable stressors. So we measured the effectiveness of this online stresses through two uh, self-reported scales. One is called the state anxiety scale uh, of the STAI scale. So basically how much anxious the participant feel uh, around a certain moment. And also they had to report retrospectively how, how stressed they felt during the manipulation. And thankfully uh, this was found to be an effective it was published in Behavior Research Methods uh, Journal. In the end, how this could be related to forensic science in terms of stressor? Now, from a theoretical perspective, we have uncontrollable social evaluative stressors in the forensic science workplace. I can give you examples. Is Some of the labs go through ISO accreditation where they get the... the 17 or 25 or 17 or 20 accreditation. And sometimes the auditors can come unannounced or external auditors, can, they can come and check the work. This is a form of social evaluative threat because they, you are being negatively judged by the auditors. And if it's unannounced or under entertainment, it's a time of uncontrollability. So Obviously, it's online. It's not as realistic as in person, but at least we started to understand the impact of uncontrollable social evaluative threat.
1: I know you say it's just online and it's not as realistic, but I can tell you, even from reading your dissertation, how you put the big red word and it said wrong or it said timeout. And then the neutral, when it was right, it was just a, a gray, okay. You know, when okay, I read yeah. that I thought to myself, oh my goodness, I would feel stressed at having to answer these questions and then have it just that big red word saying wrong, time out. And then when I was doing well, it wasn't very positive. It was just like, okay. <laughs> so I, I <laughs> yeah. think it felt really realistic. And I can actually say, I mean, obviously studies would have to be performed on this, but just the trend of your data pool, I did notice that you did have. Uh, a dropout rate of the experimental group. And it was somewhere around 17% of your experimental group actually dropped out in the middle of the test. So to me, that tells me that they were not happy with the level of stress that they were feeling. So I think you should give yourself more credit that you were absolutely able to induce stress. Okay, so after piloting um, those online stress methods, talk about what those results were.
2: Ah, oh, yeah, this is like the main <laughs> point here. <laughs> yeah. Because ultimately, we want to see what is the potential or the possible impact of this stressor that we created into fingerprint assessments. So, what we did is we looked at the impact on both non experts, novices using uh, Prolific Academy as a crowdsourcing platform, and also for fingerprint practitioners. We found out that the relationship can be complex here between stress and their decision-making. One reason is because we looked at inconclusive here. That's why we, we classify this as a complex. But the main finding that this stressor did actually improve some judgments made by fingerprint examiners, especially for the same source evidence. So the evidence that is a match, they reported higher matches Correctly compared to the control group, the non-stress group. But we found also that I could classify as an also improvement in judgment that when the fingerprints were very difficult, the stress participants were taking less risks. I think that's great. But why? Why would I say they took less risks? Because they were reporting more inconclusive. So they were saying, "I don't know." More that means they're not taking a risk by saying a match or an, an identification or exclusion, and they would be prone to error in that sense. Technically, this is classified as taking less risks, but in my opinion, it's moving to the right direction. Also, we found out that the experts performed better than the non-experts, but the non-expected is that the non-experts performed reasonably well with minimal training. Uh, in terms of their decision making. And the last finding, what we found that the online stressor of social evaluative threat and uncontrollability did actually influence the overall confidence level and the response time of the non-experts, but not as much with the experts. And I thought, okay, so the experts were more consistent in their responses, both in the stress and the non-stress condition.
1: So the the experts were able to draw their conclusions in a consistent amount of time, whereas the novices, did they take longer or did they go quicker?
2: The experts were taking almost five times more time to make their judgments compared to the non-experts. I would think that being an expert, you would respond quicker because you're familiar with the task. But here... Uh, You could explain it differently, that they were really cautious and they wanted to get it right, while maybe the the novices were not sure about how to address or answer the task, or even they wanted to finish it a bit quicker because they were being paid through prolific academic.
1: Well, that is really, really interesting you know, just the findings overall from this study, primarily that stress improved the performance, both the conferences and the experts. That was really interesting. You know, a lot of times there is anecdotal information or, or people make assumptions of what stress can do to somebody but actually showing it with this experiment. And you had a very good sample size, even for this stress set. I know it was more than a hundred examiners. I would say a a very nice sample set. You were able to show statistical significance because it was such a nice set and that stress improved. So it it was great to codify that with some actual data to, to back that up.
2: I couldn't agree more. Now we could see we have like some data showing that we have at least moderate stress. Did actually improve some of the fingerprint judgments. Each fingerprint expert made more than one judgment. Actually, each fingerprint examiner made six uh, decisions, and uh, it added up to be many, many decisions.
1: So you have a pool of more than 600 decisions to be able to draw your statistical analyses from. So that right there is extremely impressive. And then also the observable effect of the risk-taking of both the novice and the experts. And it is really interesting to see that the stress reduced the amount of risk that one wanted to take. It's it's nice to hear that. You want your experts, when they're feeling that, to be able to, to take a step back and maybe not take the big risk.
2: To add into that, Donia, I want to say that our study is really one of the first studies that included uh, inconclusive as part of the judgments. Many of the previous Decision-making studies in fingerprints did not include inconclusive because they were looking at the accuracy of decisions. Under certain contexts or conditions, they would accurately correct identification or inaccurately correct uh, identify But we added the, the inconclusive here for various reasons. One of them is that actually in practice, fingerprint examiners do opt for inconclusive and it's an important decision. Uh, that highlight the risk-taking of uh, practitioners.
1: With that, I would love to be able to get some of your thoughts on how you believe laboratories might be able to optimize workplace stress, because we know there needs to be a healthy balance.
2: I really, really like that you use this word, and I encourage everyone to think of stress in the workplace to be optimized or managed, but not mitigated, not reduced, Uh, because, as we mentioned earlier, some stress is good, so we might need to increase it, actually. So, by looking at the findings of these studies that I mentioned, as well as the broader literature, we can get some insights that could be useful to be translated to practical tips in the workplace. I want to start with the basic thing that forensic labs and the managers should rethink of stress and workplace stress and to be part of the work environment, to be an integral human factor uh, of the work practices. This is the most fundamental and the most important part here. If we recognize what stresses its impact and why is it important, we can create so many initiatives and everything else will be just a matter of project and, and you know follow-up practice. But this is the most key part in my view. So it's not a stress that we expect practitioners to deal with. There is some research actually shows that because forensic practitioners signed up to be a practitioner, they know what they are involved in. That's why they expected to deal with the stressor. I don't think that's the ideal perspective here or, we don't need to deal with stress just when there is a crisis. Uh, in my view, from what I looked at, the private sector has done a good job here, like looking at some research from Google and Target, they were implementing mindfulness practices as, as an example of a, a stress optimization strategy a while ago. So looking into this basic thing of rethink of stress as an integral part of the work quality i uh, wanted to bring up a new iso it's iso 45003 it's a way actually to look at occupational stressors uh, in the workplace and how to manage them this is a very new uh, iso looking at the mental health and uh, of the employees Uh, and sets a way for forensic service providers to be at the upfront of tackling stress and mental health. So it it highlights things like ineffective communication, poor leadership, and how to manage workload, for example. And I think I really encourage managers to look into this and maybe considering implementing it in the workplace. Now, a second practical tip is what we called earlier common stresses, And I wanted to focus on case backlogs or when we have high case loads. So this is actually a common issue in forensic science. It's not new, but till today, there's no consensus on how to resolve pressure for having high case loads. And I wanted to highlight a really good solution here that was first highlighted by Dr. Max Hawk. And I encourage thinking about it. It's about thinking through system thinking approaches. There has to be some holistic thinking about the problem of having high case laws or case backlogs. So, what does system thinking uh, mean? It means you don't look at what happens in the lab only, but you look at what happens before the sample reaches the lab and maybe sometimes after. So, it's the whole system integrated together. One clear example here that many uh, providers face is what we call artificial backlogs. The output may not be needed by the the stakeholders and would be just artificially adding to the case backlog. So here, there are various approaches to deal with it. One of it is having constant communication of what exactly is being needed. Here, it's about having uh, system thinking rather than what we call mechanical thinking. Mechanical thinking means in this period of time, maybe every year uh, we have too many cases. So maybe we'll have people having more shifts to work or more hours. It's a reactive approach rather than a proactive uh, approach. This third practical tip that I wanted to highlight is about improving relationships in the workplace. This is an important uh, aspect, in my view, that practitioners, they don't normally work in isolation. They communicate and receive feedback from different stakeholders in the workplace, let it be their colleagues, uh, the investigators, the lawyers, and others. So each type of communication may cause a different stress. But here, I wanted to highlight or to focus on the relationship between the supervisors and the the practitioner, because this was one of the uh, studies I mentioned earlier. Previous research found that management support can have two-way impact. It can reduce stress that uh, potentially practitioners may feel. Secondly, it can increase satisfaction. These are two different cognitive uh, aspects, but they are towards the right direction. Now. The ultimate aim is to improve the practitioner-supervisor relationship and their communication. One way to achieve this is through what we call emotional intelligence. And this is a great avenue to highlight a 2022 paper by Danta Harbour. I thought his paper was very interesting in Forensic Science International Synergy. Highlighting how uh, in the forensic science workplace, managers, what can they do in terms of emotional intelligence and why is that important? Now, maybe emotional intelligence could be a nice word that we talk about. But when you look deeper into it, it's more than just a nice word of emotion and intelligence. It's a skill that can be acquired by the practitioner and the manager that needs training to them. Typically in the workplace environment, we, uh, there's a lot of cases going on, communication messages and interruptions. It takes time and effort and skill for the manager to take time and pause and think that they are talking to individual practitioners. And that's part of the solution. And maybe uh, the last two points I wanted to mention is that we need to look at also the low stress, not just the high stress. So maybe we might need to look at the opportunities where we might increase stressors to the practitioners. For example, if they are doing the same tasks again and again and again, like in DNA work, there might be an opportunity to rotate the tasks so that they don't get bored from doing the same job. And the last point is to actually have proactive training practices to improve the mindset and how the practitioners may uh, behave in stressful conditions?
1: A, I have never heard of ISO 45003. And, you know, I quickly did a, a quick Google search on that and I find it to be definitely worth looking into especially now that we are seeing that it it really is linked to so many things. And that's why I like that it's linked to occupational health and safety management. So it's kind of taking the whole picture of mental health, physical health, physical safety for our employees around any discipline, really. And then also training the practitioners, not just the managers, but also training the practitioners. I like that as well, right? Having people think about their own mental health and their own perception of it, so what do you think the future is for research like this?
2: I would say in my, in my view, there should be more and more work, first of all, to better understand stresses in the foreign science workplace, because uh, we just touch on very small part of it, and there is more and more work to do in this area. But I feel we should also start to look into how we can manage stress in the foreign science workplace and optimize it and optimize the performance. And one issue that we are facing currently, in my view, in foreign science, that many of the recommendations into how to, the approaches to manage stress are based on self-reports or previous research or opinions or anecdotes, mm-hmm. but not on objective experimental approaches. And this is different to other domains, like the medical domain, for example, where they have done quite a bit into understanding how to manage stress in an objective way uh, through behavioral experiments. So what I mean by behavioral experiments, what I mean here, so we have people, some of them could be treated with a certain intervention, stress interventions, and other group, comparable group with a different stress intervention or a control group. This is similar when we do what we call randomized control trials for medicine, where some medicine is a true medicine, some is a placebo. But we can have uh, other types of experiments, which are quasi-experiments, what we call quasi-experiments, where you have one intervention one and another group intervention two, and you compare them. So by having this, you can really understand how the stress management intervention work, what works and what doesn't work. And here it's important to differentiate between three levels of management. One, that is what we call primary uh, intervention. This looks at the original source of success and how we can mitigate it or increase it or modify it, like redesigning the job, for example, or the task. This is a primary intervention. And then we have a secondary intervention, is we look at the individual, the practitioner, and how they perceive and react to the stress uh, and modify or work into this. Things like cognitive behavior therapy or mindfulness techniques. This is the second category. And then the last one is tertiary interventions. These kind of interventions look at those who already suffered from long-term stress. And so they need they were diagnosed with things like uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, as an example. And for this category of intervention, you need interventions like counseling, for example, to mitigate uh, the, the issues.
1: I could not agree more. I know um, at the moment when this is being uh, recorded, there's a lot of solicitations, research uh, grant opportunities that the NIJ has put out. And I do encourage people to, to look at what are what are ways that we can increase this body of research? And it's also very important to recognize that forensics doesn't work in a vacuum. It's one portion of a very important criminal justice system. And so it does need to have uh, attention brought to, to some of these stressors. Fantastic. I could not agree more. And so, Mohammed, I, I would like to thank you for adding to this body of literature. I think that it's critically important.
2: I would also like to thank you, Donia, and the team for giving me this opportunity uh, to talk about this important topic.
1: Well, if you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to like and follow Just Science on your platform of choice. For more information on today's topic and resources in the forensic field, visit forensicoe.org. I'm Dania Slack, and this has been another episode of Just Science.
0: Next season, Just Science covers topics from the recent ASCLAD annual symposium. Opinions or points of views expressed in this podcast represent a consensus of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of its funding.